Thank you. Okay, so kind of set the alarm for 8.30. Not that far away, is it? <laughs> uh, and we'll continue our discussion from uh, two weeks ago. We're talking about the mind, the nature of the mind, and particularly we want to, uh, to come to some sort of clear understanding of what consciousness is. So, uh, well, the mind, you, you actually have a great advantage compared to people back in the day when uh, Buddha first began writing this description, because you know that that uh, mind consists of the conscious mind, and you know that there's a whole lot more to mind than that. And that's an interesting thing that seems so obvious, doesn't it? That mind consists of a whole lot more than just consciousness. It's very interesting that it, uh, it's, it's not something that people always knew. You know, uh, it, it took quite a while for people to figure that out. They thought consciousness, mind, that's all it's consciousness, that's all there was. As a matter of fact, in Western society, you, you'll recall it was uh, Sigmund Freud that introduced the idea of the unconscious mind. And uh, not a lot of resistance at first. Now we all take it for granted. Isn't that something? Amazing. It's amazing how the collective mind uh, learns and, and grows. But the only part of the mind that we can examine directly is consciousness. And so that's a really good place to start. And uh, then see what we can learn about the mind as a whole from examining consciousness, and then progress from there to understanding more clearly what consciousness is. So, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the fact that uh, uh, you can, that well, first of all, that consciousness is always consciousness of something. Right? Consciousness is consciousness of consciousness of what. Well, it's visual consciousness, that's consciousness of visual objects. Auditory consciousness, consciousness of audible objects. Touch, smell, taste. So each of the five senses has its own kind of object, and there is a kind of consciousness associated with it. I think that's pretty straightforward. Okay? Uh, mind consciousness. In addition to the five senses, we are also conscious of mental objects. And so, uh, beginning with the Buddha uh, and ever since, we sort of said, okay, there's something corresponding to a mind sense. So just like the eye produces consciousness of visual object, there's a mind sense that produces consciousness of mental objects like thoughts and ideas and memories and emotions and intentions and so on and so forth, all of those different kinds of mental objects. So uh, you don't really need to get bogged down with saying, well, what is the mind sense? Or what, what is, yeah, what is the mind sense? Um, if you can just accept this as obviously we experience consciousness of mental objects, and it's 
obviously comparable to the way we experience consciousness of visual objects and auditory objects and tactile objects and so forth. So uh, we don't need to worry about whether it's just a useful idea or, uh, or, or whether it's actually an organ and need to figure it out. Okay, will you agree to that? Mm-hmm. I mean, we can always come back to that and worry about that if we want to. But for the sake of this discussion, we just take it for granted that there's something which you could label the mind sense, which is responsible for making us have a conscious experience of mental objects. So let's just talk about, let's just think about these six for the moment. The physical senses and mental objects. Now, reflect a little bit, maybe let's take visual consciousness to begin. Let's reflect on visual consciousness a little bit. It's very different than any of the other kinds, isn't it? That's just kind of an inescapable subjective fact. Visual consciousness is consciousness of image, images. We can deconstruct images and we find color and we find difference in intensities of color or uh, whatever the illuminating property is. And we would find boundaries. And the combination of boundaries and colors produces shapes. And then, of course, there's movement. Um, But... Is that really how you experience vision as colors and boundaries and shapes and movement? <laughs> no. The experience of images of things. Um, you know that visual consciousness begins with the eye, the retina of the eye, this organ out here. That's how it begins, right? And doesn't begin in the mind. What's that? It doesn't begin in the mind. Well, uh, for the sake of, I, I mean, you could get philosophical about it and say that we don't really know whether there's anything outside the mind. We may just be dreaming up our eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Let's not get into that kind of physical, uh, of philosophical nitpicking. Let's just take it for granted. There's an organ here. Okay. And... A lot obviously happens between the light striking the retina of your eye. You know, that's after it's already been focused and everything else. The light strikes the retina of your eye and an image appears in consciousness. A lot happens in between, right? And does all that stuff happen in consciousness? No. Okay. So we'll assume that there must be some chunk of the unconscious mind that's responsible for bridging the gap between light striking the retina of your eye and an image appearing in consciousness. Some very busy part of your mind. Um, The same thing is true with uh, auditory consciousness, right? 
vibration, the vibrations of the air vibrate your eardrum, and that uh, causes waves of vibration to go through the uh, uh, fluid in the cochlea of your ear, stimulating nerve endings. It's pretty comparable in its basics to light striking the retina of your eye. So somehow, if you get from vibrating fluid in the cochlea of your ear to sounds. And sounds consist of pitch and uh, loudness um, and the transitions between different pitches and different loudnesses, but that pretty much sums it up, right? And is that what you hear? Sometimes it is, but like right now you're hearing, you're hearing words. Um, you know, you hear dogs barking, you hear traffic noises, you hear all kinds of uh, things. It goes much more than just, you know, different pitches. And uh, how many notes does it take to recognize a piece of music that you're very familiar with? <laughs> that would be a record. <laughs> um, well, the answer I'd hope for is not very many. That <laughs> <No>, one. <laughs> and, and of course, hearing is very different from. So, um, let's just dwell on the differences between them. We've seen, we've seen that they're similar processes. Granted, there must be uh, some chunk of your unconscious mind that is responsible for converting, or for making the transition from vibrations to uh, sound that you're capable of identifying. Um, but vision and hearing are very, very different. Um, the in meditation, and I, I think I mentioned this to you before. Your perception gets very, very refined, and one of the things that you might become aware of is that seeing and hearing are separate events, and meditation experiences gave rise in part of the. Uh, Buddhist scriptures uh, uh, called the Abhidhamma to uh, what I would call moments of consciousness theory. That you have moments of visual consciousness and they are separate. They happen separately from moments of auditory consciousness. And tactile consciousness and consciousness of mental objects and taste consciousness and so on. So each, each kind of consciousness happens by itself. And, but they happen very rapidly and they're all interspersed amongst each other so that you have the experience of seeing and hearing at the same time. But, if you will think of these as there's six different kinds of moments of consciousness. So, hearing involves moments of auditory consciousness, seeing involves moments of visual consciousness. And 
actually recognizing what you hear and knowing something about what you see involves moments of mind consciousness, of, of consciousness of mental objects, of mental moments of consciousness. You okay with that? Yeah. Okay. So we have all these different moments of consciousness, each seemingly coming from um, a, a different uh, portion of the unconscious mind that is responsible for producing those moments of consciousness. Let's get to the seventh one here. Binding consciousness. This is, uh, this is a consciousness that you know, takes different things and puts them together. Um, if the stream of visual moments of consciousness is being interrupted by auditory moments and tactile moments and, and mental moments and so forth, it, it would be really helpful to have some part of your mind that did something like stringing them all together so you know, uh, you can watch movement taking place in a meaningful way, rather than having a bunch of disconnected images. Um, this is pretty, if we take another example, um, like vision has this multi-dimensional aspect to it. Hearing doesn't, not so much. Imagine yourself hearing a few notes of a piece of music. And there's a certain number of, after a certain number of notes, there's a recognition of the melody. Right? So there's a mechanism that puts that sound, puts those notes together. And when you've got enough of them, you know, it's the different pitches, but it's also the intervals between them that makes it recognizable. Well, let's look at something else that you hear. Um, can you tell the difference between, you know, you, you can't see it, the sound of an airplane flying over and uh, a truck driving by in the street? You most definitely can. But what do those sounds consist of? A whole bunch of smaller sounds, right? And you recognize you can recognize the difference between uh, uh, an airplane flying over and a, and a truck driving by with only a very small piece of each sound, right? Mm -hmm. That would be enough. But you'd have to have enough. If you didn't have enough, you couldn't tell the difference. If they were too short, you couldn't, you couldn't really say which it was. But if you get enough, you can say what it is. This is what these binding moments do. They chunk things together and make them recognizable. They do something even more important than that. They also, ha having chunked the auditory and the visual and all of the others together to make them meaningful, then they chunk the different kinds together so that so that your vision and your hearing are integrated with each other. 
this interesting thing, ventriloquism. It's called the ventriloquism effect. <laughs> mm -hmm. The fact that the mind will connect certain things that are presented visually with certain things that are present presented auditorily. And it's called the ventriloquism effect because, you know, the ventriloquist, it, it honestly feels, it's okay to use the word feel, it feels like the words are coming out of the puppet's mouth, right? Mm -hmm. It's a good ventriloquist. That's what's, and why? Well, that's because this part of your mind that creates these binding moments has put those two together. They said, oh, the movement of the puppet's mouth go with the words that I hear. And so you have the subjective experience of those words coming from the puppet's mouth. Same thing happens every time you watch a movie, a television. Your mind puts the appropriate sounds together with the appropriate parts of the visual image, and you have the subjective experience. And in the case of a movie, what's really interesting is sometimes the speakers, the location of the speakers, well, as a matter of fact, it can be really terrible. You just have one, one single speaker. You know, no stereo sound, nothing. But still, your brain puts the right words together with the right mouth. So you hear these words coming from her and those words coming from him, and it just happens so automatically. That's your brain doing that, your mind doing that. That's what's binding moments of consciousness. And the other thing is that the mental moments are really important. Because one of the things you do with every sensory experience is you recognize it. That's a great word. You recognize it. <laughs> you know it sensorily, and then you know it all over again mentally. And when you know it all over again mentally, what gets added to, added to it is identity. In, in its simplest form, it's just a label is what it is. But if you think about it, most of the time your identification comes with a whole load of associations, past experiences, likes and dislikes, dangers or, or promises or whatever, right? Perceptions. We call these, uh, the proper word for these is perceptions. So sensations are, the mind takes sensations and generates perceptions by which we know them in a very meaningful way. And, of course, these are two separate events. In terms of these different consciousnesses, once again, the mental objects have to get combined with the sensory objects. And, once again, this is the simplest level of uh, blinding consciousness. Putting, like putting the voice together with the same part of the image, it's putting the conceptual identifications together with the appropriate parts of your sensory experience. So, what I'm telling you here is that scattered amongst eye consciousness and ear consciousness and everything else are these binding moments of consciousness that combine the appropriate things together. The richness of your experience is because your consciousness consists of all of these. Um, if you want to know it, well, 
let me tell you just a little bit more about what binding consciousness says. Binding consciousness, it keeps chunking bigger and bigger and bigger parts of this conscious experience together. And at some point, it begins to emerge as, as episodes in an ongoing story. The story of you, right? And even within the space of a few seconds, but certainly within the space of a few minutes, there are part of what your binding consciousness is doing is these are moments of binding consciousness which have recognizable pieces of the story that are all that are linked together. So that's sort of we're getting up to the higher echelons of information chunking here. If you want to have some idea of what moments of what the contents of binding consciousness are like when they're not richly intermixed with the actual sensory experience, I will refer you to memory. So if you can remember last Thursday evening, what you're going to come up with is you're going to come up with a conceptual outline of the story. Let's say Thursday, okay, that's the day I did such and such. So Thursday evening I was at this place, right? And it's, you're going to get a skeleton and you're going to get a few little bits. You'll get certain images, certain, um, what's it called? Episodic memories intermixed amongst this recollection of the larger story, right? Now, if you keep recollecting that, you'll find that actually these episodic memories, uh, as you keep recalling, you'll remember more and more detail and fill in the gap more and more. So you're kind of going the other way of what happens when you go from sensation to our ordinary experience of the story of me with its full richness. So when you go back to last Thursday or a month ago or three years ago or something like that, you're just going to get the bare bones conceptual outline. And if you keep probing, you'll get more and more pieces brought in. So you'll be going back. You'll be going back in the direction of what ordinary conscious experience is. Will you ever get back there completely? Most of us won't. There are some people who have an amazing capacity to do that. They can even go back and recall details that they hadn't noticed. Uh, but most of us can't do that. Uh, we're kind of limited. We recall a very small amount of what we what made some kind of strong impression on it. Okay, so consciousness is this rich intermingling of these seven different kinds of experience. Let's look at the mind consciousness. So if you have when a thought arises in consciousness, boom, it's there. Or a memory, or emotion, or an intention. So I think it's only reasonable to assume that thoughts and ideas, memories, intentions, emotions, so forth, are formed somewhere else. Unconscious, there's a part of your unconscious mind that forms those. And then they 
are delivered via the so-called mind sense and the consciousness. So you are conscious of ideas. That fit with your experience? Okay. So let's let's look at the let's look at more of the mind then. Now this this was first articulated uh, quite a long time ago, but quite a bit after the Buddha's original teachings and long after the Abhidharma, the moments of consciousness model was presented. Um, the moments of consciousness model really came at a time before anybody realized, really truly realized that there was an unconscious mind. And so they invented something called the Balangra, the continuum of becoming, uh, to explain the things that the moments of consciousness model didn't account for in human experience. The continuum of becoming, which was unconscious. Sometimes it's pictured as this, this river, this stream, and consciousness is where it, every now and then, a little spurt of the stream breaks through the surface. <laughs> but this was a, a, a the, the mind system, the, the version of it that I, uh, that I, or the description of it I like comes from, it's called the Lankavatara Sutra. And um, mind system is a good translation of it. Because mind is no longer one thing. Mind has already become multiple things. It's become a conscious mind and an unconscious mind. And the conscious mind, as we've already seen, consists of, come on, cursor, there we go, seven kinds of moments of consciousness. And even moments of consciousness can be subdivided. There's the object of consciousness, the thing that you see, feel, hear, taste, think, or what gets bound together, it's accompanied by a whole bunch of other things. They're called mental factors. And actually, there are 50-some-odd of them that are listed, but these are the most important ones for our purposes. It, there is an object of consciousness, and when it says sense objects there, you know, uh, an idea is a sense object of the mind sense. There is a feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Every moment of consciousness is accompanied by a feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Not only that, every moment of consciousness contains within it an intention. And intention can become the object of a moment of consciousness, yes, as a mental object. But even those moments who have that have as their object something else are still accompanied by an intention. Then the other thing in the conscious mind is non-perceiving mind moments. You think of these as gaps. They're not totally gaps. They are they're mind moments, but they're mind moments that don't have an object. They're objectless. They do have a feeling associated with them. They don't have an object. They don't have an intention. And that's what happens when we go to sleep is we have more non-perceiving mind moments and fewer 
perceiving mind moments or moments, quote, moments of consciousness. It's also what happens when we get dull. Um, when you go through your life, everyday life, you'll notice sometimes you're much more fully conscious and sometimes you're much more dull. Of course, you notice this in your meditation as well. So you'll see that all of your experience, sometimes you're more fully conscious and sometimes you're less conscious. And it goes everything from those certain kinds of situations, emergencies, or or when something really wonderful has happened and you're, you're about as late as you can possibly get, right down to deep sleep. What's the difference? It's the mixture of perceiving moments of consciousness and non-perceiving mind moments. The more non-perceiving mind moments, the more dull you are. The more perceiving, and in, in the mix, and the more, uh, the more, the greater the proportion of perceiving moments, the more fully conscious you are. Yeah. Um, do you use consciousness here synonymous synonymous with awareness? Like, like for example, you would not know if you hear or smell or taste something before you bring awareness to it, or consciousness. Well, you cannot know until you become conscious of it. That's right. But yes, now that's a good point. This is the other thing I didn't include in here, but consciousness takes two forms. Attention and awareness. Um, and we talked about attention and awareness before. We talked about it enough. Is there anybody that needs to have attention and awareness as two different ways of knowing, of consciously knowing, described further or explained further? A really good compare, would you? Well, I was wondering uh, how that fits with your comment from much earlier about um, when you're describing the different senses, you know, when you began, and you said that you um, can simultaneously be uh, aware of the different senses. Is, is that true, or do you just go quickly from one to the other? You go, well, in terms of what's happening in consciousness, is, is consciousness is like a, a, a series of still shots. And so there's only one at a time. There's only visual. When there's visual, there's no auditory. There's no mental. There's no other. And then when there's auditory, same thing. That's the only one that's there. But they are combined. Interspersed amongst those are those binding moments that have mental and visual together. Uh, and, and more than just mental and visual. They have whatever combination is appropriate to the particular events that are happening right there at that time. But, yeah, you have visual moments of awareness and you have visual moments of attention. And they're not, they're two different, they're two different kinds of moments of consciousness. You have moments of tactile attention and moments of tactile awareness. And you know this because uh, you can place your attention on the sensations of your breath at the nose. That's the object of attention. At the same time, you have awareness of other sensations in your body, the air on your skin and things like that. And when you examine these two closely, they're qualitatively different. Attention isolates some small part of the sensory field and it 
analyzes and investigates it very deeply. Awareness is more global, general. It's not, it's, 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 uh, it doesn't isolate certain parts, and also it's known in a more general way. It's known in a more holistic way. Actually, if you analyze it more really closely, attention is very much object-oriented. And while awareness includes object, its emphasis is more on the relationship of the objects and the relationship of the objects to the whole. Awareness and, and attention are two different kinds of consciousness that originate in two different parts of the brain. Well, no, that's not quite true. Because each of them involves several different parts of the brain, but they're different parts. Okay? So there's a, a, a group of parts of the brain that are more... Uh, they're more left-sided, they're more uh, they're more dorsal, and they're more lateral, and they're the parts that are most active when, in terms of attention. And then there's other parts of your brain that are more medial and more ventral and more equal, equally distributed on both sides, and they are the most highly active in, uh, when, in terms of awareness. So, most of the time we have attention and awareness at the same time, so all of these parts are active at the same time. So the only way that these differences have been discerned in terms of the fMRIs and things like that is to devise things for people to do with their brains that are more involved in attention and more involved in awareness, and then they see, oh, these parts stay lit up and light up even brighter while these other parts here just kind of fade down. And then when we switch to the other kind of task, just the opposite happens. So there are two different ways of being conscious. And they also take turns with themselves, with, with each other. So really we'd say there's 14 different kinds of moments of consciousness. And then there's the non-perceiving moments scattered amongst them. It's getting to be quite a mix of things in consciousness. <laughs> getting to be a busy place. <clears throat> Consciousness, just by examining it carefully, uh, consciousness has lots of parts to it. Uh, so the mind already has a conscious and an unconscious part. Consciousness has at least 15 different kinds of parts. <laughs> uh, now let's go to the unconscious mind. Well, um, we can discern what we can, we can divide it up very simply into the sensory mind and the other mind which we would call a discriminating or thinking emotional mind. The sensory mind is where all of these sensory moments of consciousness come from. Moments of seeing, moments of hearing, moments and so forth. But we've already seen that moments of seeing and hearing are really quite distinct from each other. So we need to divide the sensory mind into actually five sensory sub-minds. Really the only reason for having a big chunk we call the sensory mind is, is in subjective experience, is it not true that sensory experience in general is quite a bit different than mental experience. So 
we might as well acknowledge that off the top and divide the unconscious mind that presents these things into consciousness as having a sensory component and a mental component. Um, let's say something about the sensory mind, the five sensory sub-minds and the five kinds of moments of consciousness the five kinds of sensory moments of consciousness. That's actually not very accurate. It's very accurate as far as vision and hearing and taste and smell go. It all falls apart with the fifth kind <coughs> of sensation. What do you call it? Body sensation? Tactile sensation? Is that one kind of sensation? Compare pain with uh, the with feeling the bumps on a braille sign. That's about as different as seeing and hearing, is it not? And actually that's reflected in the nervous system too. There are completely different parts of the nervous system that are involved in interpreting fine touch, tactile sensation, as compared to pain as compared to temperature, as compared to, you know, we can, we can break it down. Uh, part of your body sensation is, close your eyes, do you know the position of your arm, your hand, your body? Well, of course you do. That's the sensory information. Pretty different than tactile information. Pretty different than pain, right? Served by different parts of the brain. So really, body sensations would have to be broken down into at least a half a dozen more categories. So it's not 14, it's, uh, let's see, if we take, let's say half a dozen, so we have to add 5 to 7 is 12 times 2 is 24. So we're, we're up to 24. Yeah. Is this also where you would categorize things normally not controlled, like digestion and sweating and and those things that are way over there that with effort, biofeedback, some people get the hang. But well, we're we're just not. going from conscious, we're working from consciousness. We're working from what we really subjectively, experientially know to try to understand the structure of the brain. Yeah. So we'll have to account for the fact that it sounds like we're digesting, when we go to the bathroom, it looks like we digest it, okay. you know, and so forth. So, okay. so that's just—is that just going to be filed under body? Well, just well, we'll just file that under. Uh, you could file. You could file digestion under body. Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so good. That's a good box to put it in. But it's not part of the, the theme that we're trying to develop here. Okay. It's true. It needs to be accounted for later. But you're never conscious of. You're never conscious of digestion. You're only conscious of the sounds it makes <laughs> or the, the things that happen as a result of it. You're never conscious of blood pressure regulation. Yet, there are sensations being detected in the walls of your arteries that are causing your heart rate to change and the force of your heart contraction to change and the constriction of the arterioles uh, and, and everything to adjust your blood pressure. That's happening all the time. You can't ever be conscious of it. So we can come we can deal with that on another occasion. But aren't you addressing now the unconscious mind? I mean, addressing the unconscious mind, but we're only addressing 
the unconscious mind as we can infer it from these particular conscious experiences. Well, yeah, we, I mean, the reason that I'm able to tell you about how blood pressure regulation happens is because people have used their senses to, uh, to have conscious experiences that they have figured out that this must be happening by inference. And we're applying exactly the same process that people have applied to uh, explaining how blood pressure regulation happens to the process of explaining how mind works. Okay? So the sensory mind must have, uh, at, at, at the very least, a dozen different sub-minds, each in charge of a different kind of sensory processing, and each of which delivers its product into consciousness as a moment of consciousness. Okay? Delivers its product as a content of a moment of consciousness. Are you getting the picture? Actually, it's more than a dozen. I mean, think about balance, <laughs> equilibrium, acceleration. There's all kinds of other sensations. But that's all right. We're going to let Adam and the other neuroscientists catalog <laughs> Well, for sake of our discussion, let's go back to the five, okay? But, but we know that the five is just a convenient way. Okay, so there's at least five different sensory minds processing information. Each has its own source of input. Each gets its input from its own particular sense organs. It has its own cognitive domain. It stores its own information. It carries out a kind of analytical process. And as a result of that, as a result of you hear something, the auditory mind produces a product that can go into consciousness in form of you're hearing something and it has some feeling associated with it. And we'll get into intentions more as we go along, but it has an intention associated with it. Well, let's go to a tactile. So the tactile mind processes information coming from your body, and you may experience a sensation on your cheek, and you may, like at the same time, experience a feeling of, I don't like that, and an intention, I'm going to, it, it's an urge. As a matter of fact, it's an urge which will cause your hand to go up and scratch the itch. Unless you stop it, it'll happen. So. It arrives in consciousness together with a feeling and together with an, with an intention. Okay, so the subconscious mind has all these different sub-minds, each with its own domain and each producing its own product. Let's go look at this, the mental part, the discriminating, the thinking, emotional mind. Got three minutes left. <laughs> Probably won't finish this topic tonight. <laughs> called the discriminating mind because that's one of the really important things it does. It analyzes, discriminates, right? And it's also called the thinking emotional mind because that's another thing it does is it produce, produces thoughts and ideas and it produces emotions. Uh, thoughts, ideas, all of these kinds of things, they're concepts, right? So it's, it's the mind that conceptualizes about sensory information. Yes? I have a strange question for you. 
How many subconscious minds are in us? In us, do you know? I don't know a lot. I'll tell you why. You, you probably you probably couldn't put a fixed number on it because you see, there is a, one sub mind of the discriminating mind would be one whose job was to do nothing but to make sure that your behavior around other people is socially acceptable. That's its whole job. That's all it does. But now you think about that job. That one job involves a whole lot of other... So that sub-mind consists of many other smaller sub-minds, right? And each of those in turn consists of even smaller sub-minds, right? So what you could do is you could, and I'm sure, you know, psychologists and cognitive scientists and stuff, this, this is what they get paid for. So they could eventually come up with a reasonably uh, satisfactory catalog of all the top-level sub-minds. And they might penetrate enough to be able to catalog the sub-sub-minds and even some of the sub-sub-sub-minds. But you can see, they come up with a number, uh, so-and-so, is not something I think is particularly feasible. I guess more complicated in the fact that different sub-minds require input <coughs> from the same sub-sub-minds. In other words, the same function needs to be contributed to several different higher-level operations. So, so then, do you count this then as 17 because this, this particular function operates as a part of 17 different higher-level, or do you count it as only one? So it's going to also end up being how you choose to define things. Okay, well, we've gone from getting a picture of consciousness to getting a picture of how the unconscious must be structured. It must be correspondingly structured, right? The kinds of things. If we just look at emotions, for example, there is a subdivision of the, of the thinking emotional mind that is in charge of emotions. And presumably it consists of sub-minds that uh, some are in charge of deciding when anger should be generated and others when fear should be generated and others when love should be generated, right? And that's what their job is. Their job is to see what's going on right now and say, oh, well, based on everything that's ever happened and all I've got stored in my memory here, this is when I should generate fear. The mind is flooded with fear. You become conscious of all of the things associated with fear. Okay. So that, that's a picture we have, that we can go from the conscious, the structure of the conscious mind to get some idea of the structure of the unconscious mind. And we shall continue this little story uh, in two weeks. But for those of you who would like to stay and ask questions about what we've talked about tonight, let her go. <laughs> yes. Just on the, just a little bit back, you said there was a feeling associated with each uh, moment, and I was wondering, do you have to have, do you have to go to perception 
before you get the feeling, or is it actually happening at the first level? No, it's a, that's a very good question. Each moment of sensory consciousness contains a feeling, and then each moment of perception that's based on that has its own feeling. One of the things that's really interesting, and that you really, you know, to get some good insight in your meditation, look closely at feelings. There's a whole meditation on feeling, part of the four foundations of mindfulness. And what you will notice is that sometimes the sensation itself has a positive feeling associated with it, but the perception has a negative feeling associated with it, and vice versa. I mean, often they're the same, but what feels good also feels good mentally. But a very simple example, have you ever been touched by somebody they were trying to make you feel good. They did something which inherently in itself, that feels good. But because of who was doing it or the situation or something like that, your perception is, I don't like this. And those two things followed like that. So close. Right? So then is feeling, does feeling come first and then perception? Uh, no. No. Sensation is associated with feeling, and perception is associated with its own feeling. Every, every object of consciousness is associated with its own feeling. That's what I'm trying to express here. Each moment of consciousness contains all three of these things, as well as some others. <laughs> so before you even know what it is, there's a feeling about it. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's, yeah, I am... If you think about your experience, that's true. Um, if you meditate on this to recognize this, what you will happen is that you will see that indeed it is this way. What's really interesting is where it leads, seeing it is this way leads. It leads to exactly those culminating insights that we talked about this weekend. This, the, the, the four foundations of mindfulness, which is meditate, it's basically meditating on sensations, the feelings, the uh, mental states, and mental objects associated with them. That's the four foundations of mindfulness. That is a very powerful way of arriving at insight into emptiness and no self uh, suffering. I was looking for a clarification on. It might be a mental object versus mental state, but does that correlate also to, is that uh, synonymous with uh, uh, chitta and chitta-sika, or chitta-sika? Uh, uh, chitta and, I think it's chitta... Chitta-sika. Chitta-sika. These three are chitta-sikas. These three are mental factors. Okay. Okay? And chitas, mind moments are chitas. Each, okay, I each, see. Each chitta, each moment of consciousness is a chitta. Yeah. And it is made up of chitasakas. And in the Abhidhamma, they describe 50 some odd chitasakas. Not that you don't, there are some that are present in every single moment of consciousness. These are three that are present in every moment of consciousness. There are others that are only present in some and not in others. Okay, so uh, chitta is, uh, let's see. It has some sort of content associated with it and a bunch of associations in mind. But then the uh, Chattasika or Chattasika. 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 Uh, the Chattasikas, um, 
Uh, let's see. I don't, I'm just I'm just seeing it as uh, uh, well. First of all, I guess you call them chitasikas are a subset of, or they make up uh, they make up different uh, chitas, um, but also right there's a global fold each of them, or there's something uh, very. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out. My mind's, my mind's crunching on right now. It's like a uh -huh. consciousness is directly related to, or, or there's something very like identical with consciousness and uh, chitasikas. There we go. Or, now, what, what Steve's referring to, chitas and chitasikas, this is the language of the Abhidhamma, the knowledge of consciousness model, if you're interested in looking at it. It is a very dis complete description of of consciousness, a conscious mind, okay? And it's an analysis of the different kinds of moments of consciousness and then distinguishing one moment of consciousness from another based on its chitasikas. And so what, what's really interesting to point out to you here is that if you, you can distinguish one moment of consciousness uh, from another based on its object, it's the feeling that's associated with it, and the intention it carries with it. But there's all kinds of other subtler flavors. Mm. You can have you can have two moments of consciousness with the same sense object, with the same feeling, and with the same intention that are still different from each other because of these other uh, mental factors is what translates that. So this is an analysis of conscious experience where it comes from meditation experience. That people who have watched their minds so closely that they are able to catalog these these factors, these mental factors that create subtle differences <coughs> between one moment of conscious and consciousness and another. Um, of course they then did, then did what humans always do. <laughs> once, once they had made the distinctions that they could make based on experience, then they jumped into philosophy. And so then they produced a lot more mental factors, chitasikas, so that they could have categories of mind moments that fit their mm. philosophical view as well. Um, How much of a useful filter is that? Well, see, in my opinion, not too much. Okay. Okay. Uh, although not too much for the average person. It could be very valuable for the kind of person who's fascinated, who's interested in going into it, and then is willing to distinguish between what, what can be validated by experience and what is just theory. Mm. And of course, in order to do that, you have to be willing to sit down and say, okay, today I'm going to determine Look, look at the difference between these two subtle things, or That's study, right. study exactly. breath, and then yeah. Yeah. Right. find everything in common and look for the subtle differences. Or something. Yeah. yeah. So, if you're that kind of person, number one, it'd be very entertaining. <laughs> number two, you learn a lot. If you get too caught up in it, your your meditation will get stuck on analysis and mm. will not proceed to insight. Mm. So you have to watch out for that. No, I suspect that you've been that kind of person, so you've done a lot of that. I've done a bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But I have learned so much by saying, what on earth are they talking about? I think I'd better try to figure this out for myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, there's a, there's a lot, uh, and I'm the kind of person that's been able to do that. But a lot of people, uh, not so much, and it would be a waste of their time. There's far more important and valuable things that they can be doing with their time. You know, if, if, if you're like Michelangelo and you've got a knack for sculpture, it makes sense to spend time sitting around chipping pieces off a rock. If you're like me, that would be a total waste of time because all I'm going to produce is gravel. <laughs> we have machines for that. Yeah. 3D printers. Yeah. Yeah. I could divide out aggregates described as form, feeling, discrimination, mental factors, and consciousness. So, and you're using the word perception instead of discrimination. Well, so I'm getting confused. <laughs> discrimination is uh, it's it's not a good translation of, uh, of, of the word in Pali that, uh, that corresponds to that. Perception is a very precise and accurate. Uh, discrimination is something that is a part of a, of a certain category of perceptions, but. Um, Number one, it doesn't really correspond to the poly word, and number two, it leaves you not really understanding that process at all. So what is the definition of perception again? Well, is perception is the, the rendering of sensory experience in a way that is meaningful. So okay. it involves finding moments of consciousness. Uh, not direct. There's moments of perception before the binding moments come in. Okay. okay. So, but it can be both. Or but, I see. but you hear a sound, and when you recognize it as, oh, that's a siren, mm-hmm. you know, or uh, I mean, you could choose a different sound which has a whole lot more meaning associated with it. Right. But a perception is you perceive that sound as a siren. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Visually, it's very useful to consider illusions and uh, that kind of art called trompe l'oeil, sort of the eye, because you have a visual perception of something, and it may not be a thing at all. It may be something totally different. It may be, you know, in the case of, of uh, uh, art that's designed to fool the eye, you know, it's uh, it, it looks it looks like something, but it's really just a picture on a flat piece of paper. Okay, so, so perception is in each each uh, well, our, our experience consists of perceptions which give meaning to what we see, okay, and to what we hear and to what we feel. Uh, you feel a, a sensation on your arm while you're uh, doing something else, and it either it feels like a spider or like a fly, mm. right? That's a perception. Mm. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay.